The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. All right, so I got a call from Stacy around three o'clock saying, uh, can you preach for me today at in town? So I said, sure, I, you know, I'm preaching anyway, so it's not a big deal. Um, it's always a delight for me to be here, and especially with that back door open, because I can directly see the building where I work. Uh, and I work right across on the other side of 21st Avenue at Vanderbilt in the Divinity School, where I teach. I've been doing that for the last 12 years, and it's been a great journey. And I love this architecture. I love the people here, several good friends, both from Central as well as uh, friends of my son. So it's uh, really a great community. So. Um, so I don't know if you realize, but this is the last sermon on Ecclesiastes. Yay or oh no. <laughs> Are you excited about this? This is the end of the matter. This is like the end of the series that we've been doing since January. So if someone were to ask you, how would you summarize um, the book of Ecclesiastes? What, what words would you use? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm a real question. Because <laughs> every time I come speak here, I feel like I'm in a much more dialogical mode because smaller crowd. So what words would you use? What word does the writer of Ecclesiastes use a lot? Vanity. Okay, what, what other word? Vapor. vapor, right? I like the word vapor a little bit more because people do vapor nowadays, right? Vaping. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It means something much more resonant to me, something more real because my son tells me about vaping, and I haven't vaped myself, and I don't I have no real particular interest to, but vapor, think about vapor, puff goes the world. So that's the sort of the whole book, and um, you know, he's actually, the writer has been really kind of tugging us along to really kind of force us to think about our life journey together. What it means, where are we from, where are we going, and what are we to make sense of our life journey here? Whether you are 51 years old like me, or most of you are younger, some of you are older, but wherever that may be, there needs to be some reflecting point of who am I, whose am I, and these are important questions. So if it is okay uh, just to calm me down, because I think I drove pretty fast. I was play, prayed really hard, Lord, may there be no policemen, <laughs> which will have something to do with the video I'll show in, in just a bit, but let's just pray so that I can calm myself down and and speak with you and engage with you here. Let's pray. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we pray that you will be magnified through what we do here, and please be with the young people as well as not so young people, as all of us engage with your word. 
that is living and active. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're kind of like me, um, I struggle with this series. Although I enjoy listening to and engaging with the sermons preached by Pastor Scott, uh, Russ, Richie, or Stacy here, and so on, but I struggle with liking this character, Kohelet or Solomon, or as I affectionately call him, Q-Man. And yet, would you know it, this book we've been st studying since January, Ecclesiastes, hands down, the favorite biblical book for philosophers. If philosophers are asked, what is your favorite book in the Bible? Ecclesiastes. And you can see why, because he talks about everything is vapor and, you know, all of us, you know, come from dust to dust we shall return and all of these other things. And, you know, it has inspired many lyrics, song lyrics, you know, the birds and Kansas and all of these songs are from here. In fact, it is one of the top three most commentated biblical book only after Psalms and the Gospel of John. Its culture and religious impact has been felt throughout the centuries, from ranging from 4th century uh, biblical translator named Jerome in the 4th century to contemporary philosophers such as Nietzsche, as well as President Barack Obama, who mentioned about the book of Ecclesiastes and what that meant for him. So, um, among other litany of quotes, I want to quote you something from Thomas Paine one of our founding fathers in his Age of Reason, published in 1794, which although is not the best book for Orthodox theology necessarily, it has a wonderful encapsulation of the vanity of the book of Ecclesiastes itself. Let's take a listen. The book of Ecclesiastes is written as the solitary reflections of a worn out man of debauchery, such as Solomon was, who looking back on scenes he can no longer enjoy, cries out all is vapor. From what is transmitted to us of the character of Solomon, he was witty, ostentatious, dissolute, and at last melancholy. He lived fast and died tired of the world at the age of 58. 700 wives and 300 concubines would have stood in place of the whole book. It was needless after this to say that all was vanity and vexation of spirit and body. For it is impossible to derive happiness from the company of those whom we deprive of happiness. Listen to those last words. It is impossible to, de to derive happiness from the company of those whom we deprive of happiness. 700 wives, 300 concubines. If life is all about taking, taking, and taking yet more, it'll not give us ultimate happiness. It has served as a mirror, this book, as reflecting our own preconceptions about God and the good life, forcing us to think through the matter of whence we come and whither we are headed, as well as revealing our own perspective to be in need of revision, if not redemption. Redemption of interpretation. How do you interpret your own life? I don't know about you, but ever since I turned 40, I began to be much more reflective about my life. And ever since I turned 50, it's complete downhill. Every day I'm reflecting, you know, my body is decaying, and you know, it's just, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot, and, and this book, more than any other book, has really kind of forced me to think about my own life interpretation. How do I interpret my life's journey? How do you interpret it? Some of us interpret our own identities through things like where I work, who we know, whom I have married, into whose company I've been accepted, what team you play for, who your friends are, who you're with, and things like that. And sometimes the trouble of interpretation is you might think you're A, but people around you may think you're B. 
You might think you're an A student, but your teacher says, you know what, you're actually a B minor student, to our disappointment. On the other hand, you might think you're a C plus student, and your teacher says you're in fact an A minus student, and reversing the sort of decision or you know, verdict we might have given upon ourselves. So how do you interpret your life journey is a very important one, because sometimes those may conflict. So I want to show you a short video clip taking, lasting all of 45 seconds, which reveals to me a great deal about the issues of conflicting interpretations or perspectives on life. So I learned a lot about what's happening in contemporary culture from my 13-year-old son. He watches YouTube clips, uh, especially of SNL a lot, Saturday Night Live. Do you do that? I mean, there's some seventh graders here, maybe they do too, but he enjoys watching something called Black Jeopardy. There's one with Tom Hanks. How many of you have seen Black Jeopardy before? All right, good. I'm in the right audience then. Okay. There's one with Tom Hanks, which is, I think, fastly becoming classic. But this one we're about to watch is with Chadwick Boseman, a.k.a. Black Panther. So let's watch this. And it'll last and we'll talk about that. No mean streets in Wakanda. <laughs> All right, the board is yours. Very well. Let's go to our hell now for 800. <laughs> there's been some robberies in your neighborhood and asks if you have any information. What is hell now for 800 of Wakanda? <laughs> All right, yours. Very well. Okay. To hell now for 800. Okay. The policeman says there's been some robberies in your neighborhood and asks if you have any information. What? Not only do I tell this man what I know, but I also assist him in tracking down the offender. After all, our ministers of law enforcement are only here to protect us. Is this correct? I mean, it should be. But uh, I'm thinking you haven't spent much time in America. Let's just hear about today's practice. All right, you should watch this in your leisure today. <laughs> the whole thing is really hilarious, but that one, after Christian, my son, showed me that video, I said to myself, I got to use that video clip for a sermon, wherever it is next time I preach. Because here, so you see, what's happening here is Darnell Hayes, the host, you see the grimace on his face when, you know, T'Challa gave this interpretation about what your responsibility is if you're on witness at a crime scene? And T'Challa, where is he coming from? He comes from Wakanda. And Wakanda is a wonderful, idealistic republic in Africa. And there, if you see a crime scene, you can do that. But Darnell Hayes, perhaps because he's you know, a little bit driven by cynicism, maybe T'Challa from his idealism, there's an evident conflicting views of interpretation, right? So do you think he got the points for his answer or not? Doesn't get it, right? So. Or are they both driven by their own versions of realism, their own interpretations of what reality is? T'Challa, in his experience of Wakanda, he sees, okay, what I must do is, when I see a crime happen, I must not only tell somebody about that, but I should actually help out that magistrate because they're there to def defend and protect all. And he asks, if you watch the video later, isn't this correct? And Darnell Hayes grimaces and, said, and he says, it what should be. It connotes that oughtness and the way it should be, but it is not for him. So I will say, friends, that ours is fundamentally, our life journey is a war of interpretation. So I've entitled my sermon today as The End of the Matter 
or a war and peace of interpretation. So the rest of our time then, we will worship God through these three points. First, we'll look at the vanity of knowledge of production, vanity of knowledge production rather. Two, beauty of the knowledge of God's identity. Three, destiny of our identity as beloved of God. Vanity, beauty, and destiny. So the first point is the vanity of knowledge production. Here is yet another epigrammatic saying that has become so famous since it was written as it was read for us earlier today. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. If it was true when it was written back, let's say, 2,500 years ago or 2,900 years ago, it is so much, much truer today. If you just Google something, within less than a second, it'll spew off for you answers to your question, at least like several thousand entries. You know what I mean? Like, okay, when was George Washington born? And there'll be lots of different, I mean, lots of same answers, but from different websites. And there are all of these things that go, and we don't always understand it. I don't know the algorithms of how these things work, yet I don't seem to question how it is produced. So knowledge is all around us. Information is all around us in such a great plethora that we frankly don't even know what to do with them sometimes. And we simply kind of put our blinders and choose what we choose to read what we want to read, you know, whether or choose to watch what we want to watch, whether it is MSNBC on the one hand or Fox News on the other, whether it is, you know, New Republic on the one hand or The Nation on the other or the National Review or whatever it is that we read. And so we tend to kind of, because there's so much information out there, we tend to actually kind of reduce our reading bandwidth to something we already know to be true and reliable. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. So knowledge production can be seen as conquest. We produce more knowledge of the nuclear warheads and so on, so we have an escalating war over a lot of weaponry or knowledge and scientific knowledge as knowledge production is conquest. Knowledge production as a way of subduing other nations or other people. I know how to play a game better, whether it is what is that game that people play all the time or Fortnite or something? You know, my son is studying how to play Fortnite better all the time. I say, well, what are you studying there for? Because I got to get better at this. Knowledge leads to whatever power people say. Knowledge production as a way of winning the Game of Thrones or whatever throne that you are approaching. There's an inescapable sense of sarcasm about knowledge production here in this text, however, because the writer of Ecclesiastes says that of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body. All of you are students or have been students. You know what it means to study hard so your body is feeling the effect of it, right? You get tired, you get, you know, kind of worn out, and the writer says exactly that. But knowledge is something also really wonderful and could also bring us to the right point of humility, sort of what people will call epistemic humility. Let me illustrate it this way. So if you go to, if you, how many of you have been to England before? Great, okay, how many have been to London before there? Okay, how many have been to the British Library before? All right, okay, some of you have, great. So if you haven't been to England, make sure you go there It'd be a great place. Don't just go to the Buckingham Palace to see the changing of the guards. Make sure you go to the British Library. And here's why. As you walk in there, and it's a library that I used to work all the time. I get, I've been there like hundreds of times, but there's one moment about three years ago, I was going there early in the morning to do some research, and I just happened to look up. And there's a glass tower of medieval and early books that are a glass tower of six stories high. 
And at that moment, you know, I had written, you know, a few books and I was, I was like, I was really pumped up as a scholar. I'm a good scholar. And then I look at this glass tower and I'm completely dwarfed by the weightiness of these tomes that are written. They're like yay thick and yay high and all leather bound. And they're written in the 900s, you know, 1100s and 1500s, 1600s, you know, um, Newton's uh, the Principia and all of these other things are bound and kept at the British Library. And the point I'm trying to make is this, very simply, that as I stood there, I was completely dwarfed by the sheer immensity of human knowledge production. I was like, oh shoot, I know nothing. But if you actually multiply that 10,000 fold, 100,000 fold, 1 billion fold, then you arrive at something very, very analogous to divine knowledge of God. God knows the universe and cosmos before all of it ever came to be. Imagine that. Imagine that anything at all came to be, God already knew. That's amazing. Before God created space, did you know that space was created? Did you know that time was created? All of those things were bound up within God. And so God's knowledge of God, you know, himself, as well as God's knowledge of the universe is absolutely mind-bogglingly immense. So we need to think about how immense God is in our business of knowledge production. I'll tell you another story of a very, very interesting, funny thing that I found. I was reading a book that was written around 1672, and it was, there was a marginal note. It was on a scribbled on a pen on the side of the, the, so like the margins right here that you write. And these are the words that were written. And I think from the dating of when, when it was written and all that, it was around, we can say within certain degree of hopefulness that it's between late 17th and late 19th century that these, these words were written. M- must have been written by a student who wrote, Herewith I have reached the end of the book, yet I've learned less than nothing. Who is at fault here? When I read that, I was cracking up. It's like this old dude was trying to study this book and learn nothing, and he's like lamenting the fact that I've learned nothing, and whose fault is it? I wanted to write on it and say, your fault, dude, but that would be complete violation of these rare book code. You know, I couldn't do that. I may be kicked out of the library. But you see, the, the thing is, people have produced knowledge then and now, and in great immensity and great volumes, yet there is a sense of sarcasm. Does knowledge necessarily lead to what? Transformation. Does knowledge lead to wisdom? Does information give rise to transformation is the question that we, that we all have. Not only is there a problem with, of making many books, but also there are problems with unethical cultural production that has destructive consequences. Take a listen to these words from the Encyclopedia Judaica about the book of Ecclesiastes. And so from this Jewish standpoint, from these editors of this encyclopedia, they're pretty sarcastic toward Kohelet or Solomon. For a general idea about what's going on in this text, imagine working in the tobacco industry for 50 years, building a fortune, and then giving a huge endowment to a lung cancer hospital, making it the most effective treatment center for patients suffering from the effects of a lifetime spent smoking cigarettes. You might say that founding the lung cancer hospital using the money made from selling tobacco was done in vain. Specifically, your desire to help those with lung cancer was done in vain because you contributed to the cause of their lung cancer in the first place. It is as though you've done absolutely nothing. Causing lung cancer and then trying to eradicate and treat it is much the same as, having, as never having done either of these things." End quote. So for this group of editors for Encyclopedia Judaica, they look at the book of Ecclesiastes and says, you know what, all is vanity. Let me explain to you what vanity is like. You worked in you know, whatever industry, let's say you produce some real colossal social evil, and then you amass a fortune, and with that fortune, you want to correct it after the fact. 
And he says, you know what? There's going to be people who are going to be cynical, but you know, even if you were to help cure the disease that you end up, you help produce or propagate, it is still vanity of vanities, vapor of vapors. So then, is there any kind of knowledge production that will bring us to a point of closure or rest? Yes, there is. Here's a fascinating point raised by Esther Meek in her book, Loving to Know, Covenant Epistemology. She's a philosopher at Geneva College, and uh, she has um, her book, this book has quickly become one of my favorite books recently. Loving to Know. And she connects these things in a wonderful way. She talks about the fact that there is another kind of knowledge and knowledge production, and she calls it relational knowing. Or knowing that leads to loving, or knowledge that goes from information to transformation. Think about that kind of knowledge. And she says that kind of knowledge, that personal knowledge, that relational knowledge is the knowledge of God. And she talks about the tree of knowledge leading to the tree of life, thus of wisdom. You see, the problem with Adam and Eve's act of presumption and rebellion was not that there was something intrinsically wrong with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but by circumscribing our knowledge to what God has lovingly revealed to us and growing into further maturity would have led them to partaking of the tree of life. And yet, we thought that God's idea was wrong. We thought that we wanted to be the ones to say what is good and what is evil rather than divine verdict. We said human presumption got in the way. And so for Esther Meek, the whole point is, you know, for us, it is a healing of our knowing apparatus, how we know, the kind of information that we digest, the kind of information that we seek after on the internet, on our, in the library, wherever we are. What kind of information do we seek? Is it really going to be healing us of our own diseases, or is it further making us incurable and even unawares? That leads me to the second point in our sermon, that is, beauty of the knowledge of God's identity. That we see that in verse 13. Our text reads, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep God's commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So my first question is, who is this God? And what are God's commandments? And what does that tell me about us? So let's actually go to Exodus chapter 3, Verses 14 and 15 as a key text that sheds light on the identity question here about the God whom we are to fear. All right, if you have your Bibles or phones, get, uh, let's get that to work. Exodus chapter 3, 14 and 15. Okay, though, if you found it, can we read it together? Um, that'll get, get us reading together as a community. Exodus chapter 3, so Genesis and Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Trusting that you have found it, I'll help us lead it. Here we go. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I alone am reading. That's okay. All right. So, okay. Um, so, Exodus 3.14 is a very, very important text that tells us about who God is here. It's the story, if you just backtrack a little bit, what is Exodus 3 about? It's about Moses, yes? So Moses is calling, how God finds Moses in the wilderness, taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's flock for 40 years. How did he get to that Midian desert, do you know? Because he killed an Egyptian. Why did he kill an Egyptian? Because he was trying to be helpful to his own peeps, the people of Israel. So his own idea of helping his own people got him into a, being a murderer and a, a refugee and an escapee. 
And he's totally depressed and dejected and believing that he's completely forgotten by and forsaken by God. And God is right there saying, you know what? And he sees something that is the burning bush. He comes near it and God says, do not come near for you're standing on holy ground. Take off your sandals. And then there is a very, very interesting and life-transforming discourse, dialogue between God and Moses. And that's the story that we pick up here. Verse 13, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is God's name? Then what shall I tell them? And then this is verse 14 where it says, God says to Moses, I am who I am. You want to know my name? I'll tell you my name. My name is I am who I am. You and I must be thinking to ourselves, what on earth does that mean? I am who I am. What does that mean? What do you think it means? I am who I am. Another rhetorical question, but okay. I am who I am. Among other things, this tells us that God's identity is a self-referential one. What does that mean? Okay, that means something like this. That God doesn't need anything or anyone else to be God. I am who I am. There's no other entity involved. I am who I am. So, on the other hand, we, all of us, are entirely dependent upon some prior cause Meaning, your parents, and my parents, and their parents, and their parents, and their parents, and you get the picture. We are never on our own. We could never come to our place and say, I've been here all by myself. No, you're not. God is. I am who I am, God says. God is not only self-referential, but as a result, this God is eternal. And as we talked earlier, God is not bound by space or time. God exists as the greatest architect of entire cosmos. God exists outside of time and creates time, creates all the entities that are bound up by temporality and spatiality. And if you can picture life without time and without space, that was God. God was not lonely. Why? Because God was always in existence in eternal fellowship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, God was not some kind of solitary monad, but God was someone who was deeply in love within himself in that way. And we see that much clearer in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John. That's not all, because God is, God is not only self-referential and eternal and not bound by anything, but it is this God who has given us his commandments. And why did God give us his commandments? In verse 15 of Exodus 3, it is God, the Lord, who is I am who I am, but also he has chosen to reveal himself as I am the God of your fathers, which means that he entered into a mode of covenantal relationality. God, who is not bound by anything, time, space, or relationships, God says, but I've entered into this relationship so that I am not embarrassed to call myself the God of your fathers and mothers. I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Sarah. I am the God of Rebecca. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I am the God of all of these people. And so what that means is that this God of the universe has come down to where we are and says, you know what? You belong to me and moreover, and shockingly, I belong to you. God's existence is not bound up by us, but in a very strange way, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You're with me and I got you. You see, it's very important that we remember this, and that is that the, the, all, the, all of us, and with Moses included, there is this exodus event, right? Salvation, that they cross the Red Sea and they enter into the Promised Land. Exodus came before Leviticus, correct? In the book order, in, in the Bible. And in the same way, theologically, 
It is the same. That redemption that we see in Exodus comes before the law giving of Leviticus or latter part of Exodus. And that's an absolutely crucial point to remember. God's giving us of the law was based upon the relationship of covenant. God gives us the law because God loves us. God gives us the law for our own thriving, but at the same time, in our effort to self-justify ourselves, we have lowered the standards and created a law unto ourselves. Yet remembering the covenant, which means unbreakable relational commitment that God enters enters into with us. Think about the word covenant. It's that unbreakable commitment that God makes to you. Think of any unbreakable commitment that you have made unto others. You know what? We all know that our allegedly unbreakable commitments do break. There's a fragility of relationships that cause or incite within us fears or anxiety or panic attacks. What if my mom or dad won't be there? What if my brother won't be there? What if my, my, my husband or my wife won't be there? Because there is a covenantal relationship, but we have experienced from our life journey that these covenantal relationships do break down. And so we need to turn our eyes onto God. God whose identity is a covenant maker, and not only covenant maker, but covenant keeper. Not only do I make a promise with you, God says, but I'll never leave you nor forsake you because I swear by myself. Because God could not swear by anything bigger than God himself. So, and in this way, I think this uh, writer of uh, Ecclesiastes is kind of moving toward the pathways of humility because all the things that he said, all is vanity, all is vanity, but now he, toward the end of the book, says, you know what? God is the one who has given us commandments and we will be responsible before God. Our actions will be judged, mine and yours. All our actions, including those of Kohelet or Solomon, will stand under the all-powerful, all-knowing divine scrutiny from which none of us can escape. Remembering that causes us to tremble and hush and cling to God and God's promises here. So who is this God again? Our God, Israel's God, is the one who says, I am who I am. But this same great I am says, I am also the God of your fathers and mothers. I enter into this covenantal relationship with you to redeem you, to have you come to know me and to love me and desire me. To see God as your object of desire, desiring God as the ultimate kind of journey, end of our life. The Westminster Confession, the first question is, what is the chief end of the human person, the man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy God. Seeing God as the object of ultimate enjoyment, I enjoy being in love relationship with God. You might remember from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where, you know, Mr. Beaver responds to Susan and Lucy's question about this Aslan, the great lion, the king, about whether this Aslan was safe. Some of you may remember that. Beaver's answer is this. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, dearly beloved, God is not safe, but God is good. Because of the goodness of God that undergirds all of, our, all of God's acts, we can see that God is committed to being good. So you don't have to worry about being, whether God is safe or not. God is not safe per se, but God is good. And all the time, God is good. God is the one whose royal identity is not designed to rule tyrannically and make God's subject's life miserable. In fact, as we will soon see, this Aslan incarnate will have his 
coronation through his crucifixion. Coronation through his crucifixion. Let's then move to our final third point, destiny of our identity as beloved of God. So the question is, who are we? Who are you? Who am I? Let's read verse 14 of our text. It says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. All right, let me read that again, so that in case you weren't listening. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let me ask you, how do you feel after hearing this? Do you feel like, do you have a sigh of relief saying, oh, okay, I'm good? Or do you say, oh, crap, why even bother? I'm done. I'm actually undone because it says that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. You see, friends, I want you to think about the severity of what is being talked about here. Because I submit to you that modern-day Christians, we tend to grossly underestimate the severity of the law. Therefore, we really end up downplaying the beauty and the severity and the wonder of the gospel. Because many of us think that Jesus came to just fix some of my problems and that's it. Jesus did not come to heal the sick person unto health. Jesus came to live, make alive those who are actually dead. Dead unto our trespasses, dead unto our own self-righteousness, dead unto our own life journey, we say, I don't need God. So you know what, friends? In this book and throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Bible, within shot right away through the liturgy of Judaism, there is a deep recognition that we cannot possibly stand before God justified without sacrifice. Something had to die in my place. Whether it is a pigeon or lamb, something had to take my place. Because ancient Jews understood that without shedding of, shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Indeed, as this 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said interestingly, that Jewish sacrifices were literally bloody reminders of our colossal failure to get it right with God. So if you don't like the, that recognition of colossal failure, what do we do? Nietzsche says, we ended up killing God to be free of that reminder that we're not as good as we think we are. Within the same Jewish liturgy and theology, there was actually what you may know as the year of Jubilee, right? Ever heard of that Jubilee, right? It's this Jubilee campaign that was around 1999. Bono and others wanted to cancel all the developing world debt as a way of, you know, this is, we're entering into the third millennium, and let's actually declare the year of Jubilee. That's a biblical concept. There's a biblical concept coming from Leviticus chapter 25. The year of Jubilee, which is the 50th year celebration. So 49 years, you'll work the land, till the land, get harvest from it, and the 50th year, you let the land rest completely. And in the same way that if you had households, servants, and so on, in the 50th year, in the year of Jubilee, whether you have worked for 43 years or three years, in the year of Jubilee, you'll get a year rest. And in some cases, you get a complete liberation from your bondage. That year of Jubilee was a marking of God's radical generosity and hospitality, which is to be embodied and emulated by the people of God. Leviticus 25, 1 through 10 beautifully describes this fantastic event in the Jewish calendar. One of my favorite theologians of all time is not actually a theologian, but actually a musician. His name is Michael Card, and I think he's local here in Nashville. I love his music, and one of my favorite songs of all time is the song called Jubilee. And that captures a connection between who God is and whose we are. That we are forgiven, that we are set free, 
and because we are covenantly beloved of God. Listen to these words. The Lord provided for a time for the slaves to be set free, for the debts of, of all to be canceled, for his chosen ones one could see. His deep desire was for forgiveness. He longed to see their liberty, and his yearning was embodied in the year of Jubilee. Jubilee, Jubilee, Jesus is our Jubilee. Debts forgiven, slaves set free, Jesus is our Jubilee. At the Lord's appointed time, his deep desire became a man, the heart of all true jubilation, and with joy we understand. In his voice, we hear a trumpet sound that tells us we are free. He's the incarnation of the year of Jubilee. And listen to these words. To be so completely guilty, given over to despair, to look into your judge's face, only to see a savior there. To look into your judge's face because you know you're completely guilty and you're depressed and you're in despair and you look at the judge's face and voila, who do you see? You see your savior. We are beloved of God. Thus, even in the face of the severity and impending judgment, we can face the tomorrow because we stand secure in the knowledge of the love of God that was demonstrated to us through the body and the blood of Jesus that we will partake of in our communion in just a few minutes. Let me bring it to our closing now then. So one of my favorite books of all time is Toni Morrison's Beloved. And Beloved is, you know, wonderful at many levels, and there have been many interpretations about what that means, but there's a scene that is one of my favorites of all literary scenes. It's, it takes place in the clearing in the forest. And so some of you may remember this grandmother figure, Baby Suggs, and she brings all these people into, this, into the trees, and there's a clearing in the woods. And this is what it says. After situating herself on a huge flat rock, Baby Suggs bowed her head and prayed silently. The company watched her from the trees. They knew she was ready when she put her stick down. Then she shouted, let the children come. And they ran from the trees toward her. Let your mothers hear you laugh, she told them, and the woods rang. The adults looked on and could not help but smile. Then let the grown men come, she shouted. They stepped out of one by one from among the ringing trees. Let your wives and your children see you dance, she told them, and the ground life shuddered under their feet. Finally, she called the women to her. Cry, she told them, for the living and the dead just cry. And without covering their eyes, the women let loose. It started that way, laughing children, dancing men, crying women, and then it got mixed up. Women stopped crying and danced. Men sat down and cried. Children danced. Women laughed. Children cried until exhausted and riven. All and each lay about the clearing, damp and gasping for breath. In the silence that followed, baby Suggs, holy, offered up to them her great big heart of prayer. She did not tell them to clean up their lives or to go and sin no more. She did not tell them that they were the blessed of the earth is inheriting meek or its glory bound pure. She told them that the only grace they could have was the grace they could imagine. Here's a powerful conclusion. She said, in this place here, we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet in grass, love it, love it hard. Yonder, over there, they do not love your flesh. They despise it. For the slaves in this context, this clearing was a sacred ground. They could come, men, women, and children, and know that they're loved of God. They're beloved. Because out there, they might tell you that you're nobody, you're a loser, you're absolute, you belong to me, you're property, and you're nothing, less than nothing. But in here, baby Suck said, you know what, love it, love it hard, because your flesh and your soul, they don't own you, someone else owns you.
that someone else who owns you is the one who has given up his own life to be torn off to pieces, to be shed of his own blood, to give his life for you. Not only for baby Suggs, not only for others, not only for Michael Card. See, the world may despise you and me. Satan will ridicule you and threaten me and cajole us and say that your life is a lost battle. But let's remember that we are beloved. The interpretation of given, given by Satan would be that you are fully deserving of God's wrath and you're absolutely up to no good. And that is true, but only halfly so. Because Satan's truths are always half-truths. See, divine truth is always full of truth. The divine interpretation of Jubilee incarnated in Jesus will say, love it, love it hard, because you are beloved of God in me. So friends, which interpretation of yourself would you choose for today? Let's pray.